the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn right to the very end, uh, first chapter of the book of Revelation, right at the very, very end uh, of your Bible. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 18. So Revelation chapter 1, first chapter. We start reading at verse 9 and read down to the end of verse 18. This is the word of God. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We're going to spend uh, a little bit of time this morning uh, thinking about what these words mean. So before we do that, uh, we're going to pray. Our Father, we, we do want to thank you for uh, your grace and for your word. Lord, you know uh, all of the circumstances of our lives. You know uh, the frame of mind and the mood that we have when we come here this morning. Lord, you know what we need to hear and what we need to know. Uh, you, you know what we need to do. As so, a Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will work in us. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to, to understand our place in this world. I pray that you'll help us to understand... Uh, Issues of life and death and purpose and value and meaning. Help us to understand reality, to comprehend it clearly, to live in its light, to know what is best to do, what is best to avoid doing. Lord, I would pray this morning in a special way that you would help all of us understand who you are through your son, Jesus Christ. This, this figure... Uh, in history, who 
2,000 years ago lived and was crucified on a Roman cross and has quite literally changed the entire course of human history and thought and belief and art and literature since his life. Help us understand his significance. Uh, this, this figure who dominates the last 2,000 years of human history. Help us understand who he was and what he has done. Help us even to believe by faith that is based in evidence and grounded in reason that Jesus was your son, born into this world, crucified, and by your power, raised to life from the dead. Help us to understand the implications of that for our lives and also the implications of that for death itself. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now just so you know, in case you're, in case you're waiting, I will forgo reciting Matchmaker, Matchmaker. If I'm going to save up a recitation from Fiddler on the Roof, it will be around the time when I'm asking for a raise and I will cite if I were a rich man. Oh, would it spoil some celestial plan if I were a rich man? That's the theological question I'll pose to you at some point, and then you'll have to answer uh, that one from both the Jewish and Christian traditions. It's very difficult uh, when that's stacked against you. Uh, just a comment about adult Sunday school. There, this morning was our last adult Sunday school class for the year. We'll be meeting again starting in January. Next week, though, some of the younger uh, children's Sunday school classes are going to be, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word performing, but I can't think of another word on the spot. Uh, they'll be presenting a, a Christmas song in our service, and so they're going to be rehearsing in this room. So for those of you who have children in the younger Sunday school classes, please make sure that they're here next week at the regular time for Sunday school, but for the, for the adults, we won't be meeting until January. I do just want to make one note uh, in terms of persons here. Uh, last night there were a lot of thank yous for uh, the banquet, and uh, they were all well-deserved. It is worth saying, though, and I don't say this to direct praise to them, but just in terms of due recognition and thanks, uh, that, that Rick and Wendy do a tremendous amount, uh, not just for the banquet, but in the ongoing life of the church. They're highly involved. Uh, Wendy with Sunday School, uh, Rick with so many various things, Wendy with the Poinsettia Sunday and the Direction, all, all of that, uh, even being willing to dress up like a frog last night, uh, that, that's, that's a sacrifice. <laughs> so just really appreciate the both of you and all that you do. And we wouldn't have had the, the banquet that we had last night the way that we had it or this very beautiful uh, opportunity to remember uh, loved ones who have departed. So thank you very much, uh, both of you. All right. Now, we've been going through the Bible in a year as a church. We've been reading the Bible uh, in this calendar year. And this actually is just the reading for today. Uh, and a while ago, I noted that this is where we we're going to align. At Red Point, at a Sunday, I'm always trying to look for a text that has to do with the resurrection. And this one does. Uh, interestingly enough, though, if you're not overly familiar with the Bible, a lot of people seem to assume that the Bible is just filled with a lot of moral rules. 
don't murder, don't steal, generally don't be bad. And there's a whole list of things. And then they assume there's a few lists of good things, like love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Depending on your upbringing, you may reflect on something like the Lord's Prayer. You know that's in there somewhere. Uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, If you really love Christmas music, uh, you may be familiar with Handel's Messiah, and then you know a lot of Bible passages, even if you're not aware that it's from the Bible. Uh, It's just filled with them. So a lot of those people come to the Bible... And they think it's just sort of a lot of, a lot of rules, a lot of moral teachings. And there are some of that. There is some of that, for sure. But the Bible has lots of literary genres. The Bible talks about our relationship with God through a lot of different literary lenses. So there's poetry. Uh, there's history. There are parables, just stories that are told. Uh, almost like fables, in a sense. Uh, where stories are told that have moral lessons. And it's transparent that these aren't historical. It's transparent that some of these are just stories that are designed to teach a moral principle. There, is, there are songs. There are teachings of Jesus. There are events in the life of Jesus. So there's lots of history, too. And the book of Revelation is kind of a special kind of literature. So if, as I'm reading this section, you're within your rights to somewhat respond, in the first instance, that's just a little bit strange. What are they talking about? What's going on here? What is this description? Well, what's going on is that the writer is very very carefully using a literary genre, which is highly symbolic and highly artistic. This is impressionistic using words. So what we need to do is we need to just go a little bit more slowly. You can't just read the book of Revelation fast. None of it will make any sense. But if you just slow down, if you just take a phrase at a time, and think about it just for a little bit, particularly in cultural context, it actually makes a lot of sense. The book of Revelation actually is a book that anyone can understand if they just take the time. So what's going on here? Well, the author, John, first of all, identifies himself. Uh, that, that may be him calling to let us know who he is. Uh, it's really hard, hard to know. Uh, he wants to identify himself. So some people have their own special ringtone. He just has this phrase, your brother and companion. Now, he was an apostle. He actually uh, lived with Jesus. He followed Jesus physically and literally when Jesus was here on earth teaching, as we know from the Gospels. But John here could have said, listen, I'm an important person. I, I'm, I'm the apostle. Don't forget. Don't forget my status. But he doesn't. He says, listen, I'm just your brother and your companion. One of the things that's really beautiful about this community, this church community, which is even more apparent perhaps on point set of Sunday, we are a family. We are a community. We have relationships with each other. And obviously in a group this size, some people you will know better than others. That's okay. Some people you will connect with better than others. That's okay too. But fundamentally, we have a real unity, or we ought to. God gives us a unity, and we are responsible to maintain it. We are to keep unity in the bond of peace. And so one of the things that we remind ourselves today is that we are brothers and sisters and companions. We ought to be serving together. We ought to enjoy living life together. That's what John is sort of presenting himself as, your brother and companion. But in what? 
You can be brothers in arms. You can be companions in all sorts of things. He gives you a short list. I'm your brother and companion. I'm bonded with you. I share a unity with you in the suffering. John, at this time, has seen a lot of his friends executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. In the Roman world, uh, at this time, the Romans had unleashed waves of persecutions against Christians. The reason was Christians would not honor the emperor as a god. And so there were loyalty oaths in the, ancient, in the Roman world at this time where Christians, you had, to, you had to sort of burn some incense and acknowledge that Caesar was God. The Christians couldn't do that. And so they were systematically persecuted and executed. John had already seen, if, if, if tradition is right, John had already seen all of the other disciples of Jesus executed for their faith. He's the last one alive. And he's on this island called Patmos. He's been exiled off the mainland to this prison colony island. So he knows a little bit about suffering. He understands a little bit about what it's like to suffer personally and also to suffer grievous and violent loss. His closest and dearest friends, who are closer than family to him, he had knows have been executed for their faith in Jesus. And so one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of is that in this community, Whenever you get this number of people, there are going to be people who are suffering in all kinds of different ways. There will be people who are suffering emotionally, people who are suffering physically, people who are suffering mentally, people who are suffering spiritually. And it's vitally important that we recognize that so that this community is a safe place to acknowledge. One of the things that bonds us it's a common experience of suffering and pain and heartache sometimes. And, and your heartache might be a little bit different from my heartache. It might come from different reasons. But the experience of heartache is the same. And we need to support each other. Brothers and companions. But it's not merely the suffering. It's in the suffering and kingdom. And this is an amazing thing, actually. John has seen the power of Rome execute systematically the other apostles, the disciples, and all kinds of Christians. He knows this. He himself is exiled. And he says, well, you know what we share in? We share in the kingdom. And you'd almost want to say, sort of empirically, what are you talking about? What kind of kingdom do you have? Everyone's losing their life. You're the last one who followed Jesus, and you've been exiled. You know, where is the power and the glory? Where is the kingdom? John says, no, 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 we, we share in the kingdom. You don't see it all now. But little could John have known how much the kingdom of God through the church was going to grow and, and expand across all of the globe as it is today. 2,000 years ago, the last apostle, in exile in an island, all he has to cling to is that Jesus said that just like a, tree, just like a seed is planted in the ground and grows up to be an enormous tree that all the birds of the air perch in, so will the kingdom of heaven be like. John says, I'm going to believe that. We share in a kingdom, and we don't see it now. But we know the king, and we trust that he will bring his purposes to pass. When you start in Revelation 4, John is given a vision of heaven. And the very first thing he says is, then I looked and I saw a throne. In other words, by the eyes of faith, he can see 
that the throne of the universe is not a throne that's in Rome, occupied by Caesar. It's a throne in heaven, occupied by God. We share in the kingdom now and in its future consummation in the new heavens and new earth. And because of that, we share in the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Caught between these two realities, suffering, but citizens of the kingdom, we require patient endurance, to be patient, to wait, to know that what we experience now is not all we are going to experience. Glory awaits us and that eternally. And it can be hard to be patient. When there are good things that you see and good things that you desire, it can be very hard to be patient. But we need to endure. There are difficult things to walk through sometimes in this world. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance in Jesus. That's the unifying bond. Uh, in fact, Paul will write in Galatians that in Christ, or sort of in this bond in Jesus, in union with Jesus, there is neither... Greek or, Gen or Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In other words, what he's saying is, in Christ there's such a radical unity that all sociological demographic sorts of, of uh, criteria break down. In Christ is a fundamental unity. In Jesus, we can all be one. And then in the, in the world that Paul writes in, there was no one who was inclusive. There was no one who was talking that way. The whole world was split up into utterly sort of racist and sexist categories. Completely. And Paul says, no, no, no. In Jesus, all that goes away. In Jesus, all races are one. All ethnicities are one. All sort of economic distinctions. It doesn't, none of it matters. Political power, none of it matters. Color of your skin, the language you speak, none of it matters. Sex and gender does not matter in Christ. We have a radical community unity bonded in him. Suffering, yes. Kingdom, yes. Patient endurance. All together in Jesus. So he's on this island because of the word of Jesus and the, the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. Because he keeps preaching the gospel. Because he's telling people about Christ. He's been exiled. We're told that through the spirit of God, he hears a voice like a trumpet. Now, in the ancient world, of course, you'll recognize, they did not have these sorts of PA sound systems. And so if you want to communicate that something was loud, you can't use sort of metaphors or analogies or similes about speakers and amplification. So all you can do is use, like, the loudest thing that you have. In battle, people signaled to each other through trumpets. This is the loudest sound you would hear growing up in the ancient world. And so what John is saying when he says, I heard a voice like a trumpet, is I heard a voice that you couldn't believe the power behind it. No amplification. Simply this voice is powerful like a trumpet. It tells me to write these messages to these churches in, in the cities that it lists. Just so you know, the one city that you likely recognize, Philadelphia, uh, was not the one in Pennsylvania at that particular time. So he hears this incredible voice, and he turns around. I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And this is where you get into this highly artistic literary genre. 
When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. They stopped. You say, well, what is a lampstand? Well, obviously, a, a lampstand is a place where you put a lamp. A lamp stands on it. Well, what's the purpose of a lamp? Well, uh, the purpose of a lamp is to shine light, to provide a light source for illumination. So if you just take just that little bit of time to think about the symbol, the lampstand is going to be a place to place a light so that you can see so that there's illumination. So there's these lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So someone who looks like a human being. Except, if you were here last week, you recall that in Daniel chapter 7, there's a person who comes into the presence of God to receive the kingdom of God. And he is described as one like a son of man. Jesus continually refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man, drawing on that Daniel 7 context. And so here, when you're told, I saw someone like a Son of Man, you're supposed to remember Jesus kept referring to himself that way. And Jesus referred to himself that way because in an earlier book in the Bible, the book of Daniel, there's someone like a Son of Man who comes with glory and power into the presence of God and receives a kingdom that lasts forever. So this is drawing on all of that imagery. This is Jesus, the one who comes into the presence of God to receive the kingdom that lasts forever. Now, if you just, you, here's something else, just a little bit for free. If you don't understand all the imagery, sometimes you can cheat and just keep reading, and they also explain it to you, which is very helpful. So if you just take a quick look at verse 20, it is the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you already told the lampstands are. You just have to keep reading. The lampstands are the churches. So the image here is this. This loud voice like a trumpet that arrests your attention is heard. You turn around. You see seven stands where light will be shining from. And someone like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, in the middle of them. That's the image. The church, then, as the lampstand, is not the light. It's not the light source. But the church is the place where the light of Jesus Christ is to shine into the world. We are not the origins of the light. In that sense, we're, we're like the moon. Jesus is the sun. We are like the moon. We reflect the light of Jesus. The light isn't original to us. It's reflected from us. The Son of Man was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, at this time in history, according to a Jewish historian from the first century named Josephus, the priests who served in the temple wore robes that had gold interwoven through the fabric. And so to have this long robe with gold kind of connotes a priest. A priest is someone who brought people to God and mediated God to the people through sacrifice. But we also know that kings and rulers dressed in robes with golden sashes. He's wearing a golden sash. Later on in Revelation, angels are dressed this way. 
So the whole composite picture is this long robe with gold. It's speaking of some sort of importance. It may be religious importance. It may be uh, kingly importance. It may be spiritual importance. But the whole point, notwithstanding, is pretty obvious. Here is someone who is richly dressed in an ornate way, which is very impressive. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Now this was obviously before people started dyeing their hair. Uh, he was, this is supposed to be something which is impressive. You're not supposed to read this and go, oh, there's someone with white hair. You should say, oh, there's someone with white hair. That's impressive. How different culture is today from what it was then. In the book of Proverbs, we're told numerous times that gray or white hair is a crown of splendor. So why is that the case? Because all things being equal, your hair turns white as you get older. And all things being equal, you grow in wisdom as you get older. And believe it or not, there have been cultures which have actually thought that wisdom was more important than sexuality. There have actually been cultures that thought that wisdom was more important than youth. You'd never, you'd never dream of that today. Our culture doesn't prize wisdom at all. Our, our culture doesn't even prize youth. Our culture prizes the illusion of youth. Because just so you know, if you dye your hair, you can dye your hair, I don't care, you do what you want. Your hair actually still is gray or white. It's just covered, right? Like, that's what hair dye is. Like, you can use whatever moisturizing creams you want. Like, it can take, I mean, some of the best ones, the ones that, you know, are 80 bucks for a little thing, like, they actually will take, like, two years off how your appearance. It's incredible. So you can look 76 instead of 78. Amazing. You know, you can actually do that. It's the best use of money imaginable. Do whatever you want. But the reality is you still are the age you are. Like, it's not like, I mean, you can take that oil of a layer or whatever, you can put it on your birth certificate, the date doesn't change. You know, like, it's not going to happen. You are the age you are. That's all there is to it. But in this culture, white hair, especially with mortality rates, a lot of people died pretty young. So to actually have white hair, that was a crown of sweater. You've lived full life. You're honored. There are cultures around the world today that still honor the elderly. Uh, we need to recapture some of that or discover it maybe for the first time. White like wool is white. These are the whitest things in the ancient world you would ever see. But he's not weak. His eyes were like blazing fire. So this contrasts with, with the hair. Now also, interesting enough, this is drawn from Daniel 7. One like a son of man comes into the presence of the person called what? The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. And it's the Ancient of Days. God is described in Daniel 7 as having white hair. So this one like a son of man, Jesus, is now being described in ways that are used of God. He's being described like he's God. Interestingly enough, claim of humanity and claim of deity. His eyes are like blazing fire, not old and weak, not roomy, but wise, sees through you, perceives everything. His feet, stability, like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze is strong. And this also sort of highlights sort of the, the flaming glory of this person. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like fire. 
He's strong and stable. He sees everything. He sees right through you. And he's wise. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Again, ancient world. Even today, you, you, go, out, you go out hiking a place that's near rapids. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite outdoor spots uh, in, in Ontario uh, is a place with, with rapids. And, and as you move along through the forest towards it, you can start hearing this dull roar long before you can see it. And, and, and as you move closer and closer and closer, that, that water gets it's louder and louder and louder and louder. Until, depending on flood stage, so it's sort of spring after thaw, you can stand next to some rapids. You can barely hear the person talking next to you. The roar of the water is so loud. A sound like the voice, or his voice is like the sound of rushing water. It's another way of saying it's like a trumpet. It's so loud, it's overwhelming. Also, interestingly enough, God's voice is described like the sound of rushing waters or mighty waters in the book of Ezekiel. So you're being told that this person, this Jesus, speaks like the voice of God. Then in his right hand, he holds the seven stars. His right hand is the hand of power and control and protection. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. This is the word of God. When he speaks, his words have the power of life and death. His words pierce through everything. It's not just that his words are a weapon, and you can almost in some ways bring it across with, with different metaphors. It's like his word is a scalpel. It, 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 just, it just precision cuts through everything. But in the ancient world, the sword is also a symbol of life and death. The power of life and death is in his word. The power of life and death comes out of his mouth. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What this means is you can't look at him. You can't look him full in the face. You, you, can, you can kind of gaze at him. You have to avert your eyes. He's overwhelming. And you take all of this stuff together, and even if you don't understand every little detail, as I'm sure I don't, at the end, you basically end up with this composite picture, which is very certain and very sure that this person is in the middle of the churches. He's the master of the churches. He's the Lord of the churches. He looks like God. He sounds like God. He's filled with holy glory. And he's the most impressive being you could possibly imagine. That's that artistic literary sketch. That's what you're supposed to come away with. You can't even look at him directly. That's how incredible and awesome he is. So what's the response? When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the response. He is such an awesome person that all of your strength gives out and you fall in a dead faint at his feet. And this is John. John is characterized in the Bible as the disciple Jesus loved. He had a special relationship with Jesus. He's the one who walked with Jesus. He's the one who had already seen Jesus raised from the dead at different times. But when he sees this Jesus, when he sees the glory of Jesus being allowed to shine out from behind the veil, John, whom Jesus loved, who had spent years of his life in proximity with Jesus, who had touched him, who had heard his voice before, who was there when Jesus performed miracles, who was there to hear the teaching of Jesus, this John, Jesus' closest companion, falls as if he's dead. 
Because the resurrected Christ, the one raised from the dead, is filled with holy glory and power and love. It is unbearable in its intensity. And this being, this Jesus, reaches down with his right hand, the hand of power, but he uses his hand of power to comfort. He touched me with his right hand. He placed his right hand on me. That's the symbol of power and authority. But he uses it to comfort. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You, you've just come face to face with a being who you can't even look at. You can't even endure to be in his presence. And you feel like you're dead. But this being himself says, no, don't be afraid. He uses his power to provide comfort. I am the first and the last. I'm, I'm before time. I will exist to the end of time. I am the living one. This is more than I'm just alive. This is, I am life itself. In John 14, Jesus characterizes himself. Many of you are familiar with this, with this verse. Jesus characterizes himself by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life itself. He's the source of all life. He himself is independent. He needs nothing, not oxygen or, or water or food or, or anything at all. God exists through the sheer power of his own nature. Nothing else is like that. Everything else is contingent. Everything else is dependent on a whole host of factors. But not Jesus. I am the living one. I am life itself. I was dead. We know historically, without any doubt at all, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and died on a Roman cross. This is one of the most easily historically evidenced events from the ancient world. There's no doubt. Jesus lived and was crucified on a cross. The question is, what happened next? Something happened which would literally change the entire course of human history. And that was his disciples, without any doubt, were transformed from a group of people who had run away in fear and disbelief to people who were absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was raised to the point where they all lost their lives in the proclamation of that truth. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever. This is the claim of resurrection. This is a claim that in Jesus there is life after death. It's one of the great mysteries, right? Every human culture in the history of the world has tried to understand why are we here? What is the origin of life? What is the meaning and purpose of life today? And what's next? Peter Pan will say, dying would be a great adventure. And every culture has felt that. What happens in that moment of death? Is this it? Is this the end? Well, no one could possibly know that it is, actually. Logically, it would be impossible to know that this is the end. But is there evidence that, there, that it isn't? 
The intuition throughout, the hu- throughout human history is that there is an afterlife. That's, that, that's, that's well documented. The intuition throughout human history has been, transculturally, that there's a meaningful origin, a purpose to life now, and something more after death. There's all kinds of traditions and taboos that build up around that. The question is, why do we have this universal human intuition that's transcultural? Well, I'd suggest that the, the, the reason is because we've been built that way to feel that because it's true. And not only is it true, there is one person and if, if you'd like to discuss, I, would, I, will, I will meet with any of you at any time uh, to have coffee. And uh, Jake, uh, our, the assistant pastor here at the church, he will even give us money to buy our coffee. And, and if you want lunch, Jake will buy lunch for us. It'll be wonderful. And we'll go and we'll chat. We'll, we'll talk about these things. There, 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 are, there are good, rational, and historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. But he claims, I was dead and I'm alive forever and ever. He is alive. We can know that there actually is life after death because Jesus Christ himself has died and been raised to life. That's how we know. Uh, we know that there is something after death because someone has conquered death. Someone has actually gone through it and come out the other side. There is a witness who is God in human flesh, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and has been raised to life, who comes in and testifies, look, there is death, but there's life on the other side. I am the living one. Behold, I was dead, but I live forever and ever. And the story of the gospel is that all of those brothers and sisters and companions who are in Jesus, they're united with that life. That life is theirs too. Forever and ever. We share in the same quality, and we share in the same duration. United with Jesus, we are united with the source of life forever and ever. And so as Christians, do we suffer? Yes. And do we grieve those who we love who have departed this world? Yes, because we miss them. But we don't grieve for their sake. We grieve for our sake. We're sad because we miss seeing them and hearing their voices. We, we grieve in a real sense for us. Because all those who are in Christ are experiencing eternal life. Joined to the source of life, they live forever and ever and ever. And so as Christians, when Christians think about death, they should grieve. They should be outraged in some ways that death is something which takes place in this world. But also we grieve with hope, even at times with bittersweet joy, a joy that aches. Because every death of a believer, a child of God, is a reminder that's our future too. Through the waters of death, but because of Jesus Christ, this mighty God, we will live forever and ever. Well, may God help us. May God help us understand who Jesus really is. This is just one picture of him. Uh, Jesus is a fascinating character. I'd really encourage you. you know, people, a lot of people think the Bible is boring. and I, 
I'd, I'd suggest that's because they haven't read it carefully. If it's been a while since you've read the Bible, go back. Start reading the Gospel of Matthew. It, it will teach you. There's lots of Christmas stories there to begin with. But then it gets into some of the things that Jesus did and taught. Familiarize yourself with Jesus. This is just one picture. He is God. He did die. And he conquered death. I believe that. As a historical fact. That Jesus one day was raised to life. And we can have life too. If we put our faith in him. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.